What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the MMA by the Numbers podcast, where we're taking a numbers-driven look into the world of mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Jason Chandel, and this episode is UFC Vegas 52 by the Numbers. I'm going to be diving into the stats and the fights, I'm going to pick winners, and I'm going to talk about my favorite bets on the card. It's a pretty small card this week for us to really dig into, as there aren't a lot of stats floating around here. We've got a lot of debuting fighters, a lot of fighters who've maybe only got 5-10 minutes of octagon time, so not really big enough samples there to dig our teeth into it's going to leave us i think with five fights that we're going to go over on this one so a little bit of a shorter episode than usual of course when i say that i usually end up rambling on longer than i expect so to start things off i'm going to be taking a look at charles jordan against lando venata jordan will be moving back up from featherweight here and if we look at his numbers in the featherweight division he has a significant strike differential that's strikes landed minus strikes absorbed of plus 2.19 per minute That puts him 5th in UFC featherweight history for anyone with 5 plus fights in the division, trailing only Alex Volkanovski, Max Holloway, Akeem Dewodu, and Conor McGregor. That stat conveniently leaves out his 2 fights with his worst significant strike differentials, however, uh, against Des Green at lightweight in his debut and then in a catchweight bout against Julian Arosa. If we include those two, that significant strike differential does drop down to plus 1.13 per minute. And if we shift our view then even uh, further towards a smaller target and just look at his distance striking, try to get a feel for his stand-up here, that differential drops to plus 0.73 per minute. So he's landing 5.61 strikes per minute from distance, but he's absorbing 4.89. Those numbers do both compare favorably to Lando Venata's numbers, however. Venata lands 5.02 while absorbing 4.96. So while Jordan's landing about three quarters of a distance strike per minute more than his opponents, Venata is right in line with his opponents, just outlanding them by plus 0.06. We see this come despite the fact that Jordan actually gets outpaced very slightly on the feet when he's striking at distance, facing 13.3 attempts per minute, getting off just 12.2 attempts of his own, and Venata, with 11.7 attempts per minute versus 11.6 faced, is outpacing his opponents. But it's the efficiency gap here that really makes up makes the difference, with Jordan's 46% accuracy beating Venata's 43, and Jordan's 63% defense rate beating Venata's 57%. Even though Jordan is the one who's been fighting at featherweight, he, we do also see a higher knockdown rate there, at 1.65% compared to 1.13% for Venata. Neither one grapples much, both with a control rate of less than 10%, while neither have also been controlled a ton in the grappling, both with opponent control rates below 15%, this means that both of them have spent over three quarters of their octagon time striking from distance. That has the makings of a fun fight, and that also means that we're likely to see this fight playing out where Jordan has those statistical edges. Now, Venata has faced the higher level of competition, so we do want to adjust our expectations a little bit on that. But really, from everything I've seen, until we get to really extremes with uh, levels of competition, adjusting for that when we're trying to look at striking efficiency ultimately doesn't doesn't really make the stats any more predictive, uh, especially when we're looking at comparing it to the betting markets. So that is to say that even if accounting for uh, opponents might give us a slightly better feel of who's who's the better fighter, it actually is at least fully taken into account generally on average or even over accounted for when we're looking at the betting market. So maybe people are overrating the difference in level of competition um, when there is one. So taking all that into account and looking at what is potentially going to be a pretty striking heavy matchup, uh, I do lean towards Charles Jordan here and I also think we're getting some pretty good value at minus 125. I know the line movement has been really strongly against him. I think he opened at like minus 165 and 
that wasn't like an opener that just immediately got crushed. I think he was available at minus 150 uh, within the last couple of weeks. I, that line sat for, for a while. Um, but despite this line movement going going the other direction, I do like Jordan to win this one. I think the line has moved too far, and I, I like him as the betting pick for this fight as well. Next, we go to the flyweight division for a matchup that has one of my favorite bets on the card. We've got Sue Muderji taking on Manel Kopp. Muderji's distance striking stats have been stellar through his UFC career so far, landing at 48% accuracy with a massive 77% defense rate from distance, and he's doing this while outpacing his opponents. He's not hyper-aggressive, throwing 10.2 distance strike attempts per minute, but he's facing only 7.5 coming back the other way. That leaves him landing almost three times as many distance strikes per minute as, as he's absorbing. His ratio is 2.82 to 1. That's coming from 4.83 landed per minute and 1.71 absorbed per minute. When we've got stats this good, especially uh, efficiency-wise, we always want to take into account leg kick rate, uh, as leg kicks are over twice as accurate as a typical distance strike. But at 19.4%, it's not like he has a really disproportionately high leg kick rate. So it's not like that's overly skewing his data here. On the other side of things, Cop's distance striking numbers um, offensively are obviously very good. He's got a 53% accuracy rate, he's landing 5.07 distance strikes per minute, and he's got a 2.05% knockdown rate. He hasn't paired that with great overall numbers though, I mean his 52% distance striking defense rate, you know, it's not terrible when you account for how high his offense rate is, I talk about this all the time, we expect those to be on about opposite sides of 50%, so he is landing 5% more accurately than his opponents, but you know, 52% defense is nothing special, and he is getting outpaced overall, 10.3 to 9.6 distance strike attempts per minute. And when you look at a knockdown rate like 2.05%, that's just not really sustainable at the flyweight division. It may be for a guy like Davis and Figueroa, and even him, we're seeing it come down. We can acknowledge that Cop has great power and that his knockdown rate is probably uh, you know, higher now than it will be over his whole career on average. Uh, and also the fact that when he hasn't got those knockdowns, you know, he hasn't been especially dangerous looking. I mean, the, the Mateus Nicolau fight, obviously a split decision, but um, was really controlled there. And, and that fight was very even from distance. I mean, he did, uh, Cop did outpace Nicolau pretty significantly, 145 to 96 in distance strike attempts, but only outlanded him 58 to 50. And if we remove leg kicks, he only outlanded Nicolau by one significant strike. So, um, you know, we can't just pull out the stats and remove them entirely from our analysis because they even things out, like that leg kick number. But it's to say, like, that fight, it, it's not like he outlanded Nicolau by a massive margin on the feet or anything. Uh, and then against Pantoja, he was outlanded 72 to 49 from distance. So a pretty, pretty concerning differential in those fights. And then it's these last two fights where he has managed to find that power that he that has, has made up for it. Even at heavyweight, we don't always love when a guy is using his power to kind of make up for other other deficiencies. When we get down to flyweight, that becomes especially concerning. And Sumu Derji does have one, you know, early knockout of his own against Malcolm Gordon. But then if we look at his other fights, I mean, he did lose to Luis Smolka in his debut. There wasn't a ton of striking in that fight, though. Uh, and Muderji did land four of 12 from distance while Smolka only landed one of nine. Um... And, you know, his down, Muderji's downfall in that fight was his defensive grappling. Smolka's one of the best offensive grapplers in the division. Cop is not. I don't think that's going to be an issue. And then, you know, we've got weak competition against Andre Sukumthot, but did outland Sukumthot over 3-1, to 64-20 in distance strikes. Uh, only a 
five strike differential and leg kicks. So it's not like, like, like I said, it's not like that was skewing the stats here. It was 72 to 13 in, in uh, significant head strikes in that one. Uh, and then in his last fight against Saruk Adeshev, uh, Sumu Derji outlanded Adeshev 50 to 24 from distance. So again, just really piled up, um, piled up that distance strike differential. So, I mean, yes, Cop's power can absolutely be a difference maker. His offensive efficiency is definitely something to keep an eye on. But I think that Muderji's efficiency and his pace it, it should be enough in this fight. I've got this one pretty close to 50-50 with Cop's with power bringing it, you know, back, back down to a little more unpredictable than it would be otherwise. Um, and with, with that being kind of where I'm seeing this fight... Muderji at plus 155 is absolutely one of my favorite bets on the card and, and one that I'm going to be really big on this week. Next up, we're in the flyweight division with Macy Barber taking on Montana De La Rosa. De La Rosa is someone I've really not been very high on in a lot of her recent fights. I mean, you know, going back to her performance against Rachel Ostovich, like someone who's close with Ostovich in distance strikes and then gets dominated by Andrea Lee a couple fights later. I thought it was looking pretty clear that um, a good submission game against bad opponents had kind of held up De La Rosa at a higher level than her skill might uh, otherwise indicate. But she's really proved me, um, if not if not wrong, she's certainly uh, left room for a shadow of a doubt here in, in some of her recent fights. I know it's not like she's been on an absolute tear winning, uh, but her grappling has looked a lot more efficient than it did early on. I mean, she's got a 31% takedown accuracy rate, which is like a fine mark it's it's nothing to write home about but when she's averaging 7.2 takedown attempts per 15 minutes 31 percent ends up being a pretty solid rate we tend to see higher takedown volume coming with lower accuracy because um of how much chain wrestling and and kind of going for broke on takedowns is gonna let your opponents kind of know what's coming and and efficiency becomes a little bit harder so averaging two and a quarter takedowns per 15 minutes is great especially when she's turning in a 43 percent control rate with those takedowns i mean she is spending almost half of her fight time in control positions be it against the cage or on the ground she does really rely on that to cover up for some very poor distance striking where she has just a 30% accuracy and 51% defense rate, meaning her opponents are landing 19% more accurately than she is. They're outlanding her by 0.9 distance strikes per minute. Uh, and Macy Barber, while, while her striking numbers are kind of average, 31% accuracy, 66% defense, 3.93 landed, 3.89 absorbed per minute, uh, Barber should really be able to take advantage of De La Rosa's striking. The thing is, Barber's weakness lines up a little concerningly for her here. She's only got a 50% takedown defense rate, and about 30% of her fight time has been spent allowing control positions to her opponents. Now, some of that is skewed by her fight with Roxanne Modafferi. Modafferi had over 10 minutes of control time, 10 and a half minutes in that one. And Modafferi, for as unconventional as it is, she is a very legitimate grappler, still probably one of the better grapplers in the division, um, even though she's not you know, necessarily a... a doesn't necessarily have a great takedown game, but like once the fight's on the ground and, and when she's in the clinch, she can do a little bit of work with her control there. It isn't just a one fight thing with, with Barbara though. I mean, obviously 10 and a half minutes in one fight is going to, is going to shift things pretty heavily, but she also gave up five minutes and 10 seconds to Grasso in the following fight. And then she gave up uh, about a minute and a half. I mean, I know it's not a huge number, but for a fight that she was usually the one uh, trying to engage in the grappling. Giving up 80 seconds to, to Miranda Maverick in her last fight, also not great. So what we've really got here is kind of can Barber keep De La Rosa off her for long enough to win this fight? Um, 
with with her striking and it's interesting in this weight class it kind of plays out a little bit differently to um to how we can look at, at matchups like this in, in some of the higher weight classes where, you know, maybe the wrestler needs to control for 15 minutes, but the striker just needs to get in one good combination to potentially end the fight. Obviously, Barber does have some some fight-ending power potential, but really to win this one, she's probably going to need to control the fight for 15 minutes. I mean, there's a reason that she's plus 115 to win by decision and plus 315 to finish, but two-thirds of De La Rosa's pro wins have come by submission. So this means that relative to their overall chances of winning the fight, you know, Barbara is the favorite, obviously, any outcome with a Barbara win is probably going to be a little bit more likely than an outcome with a De La Rosa win. But relative to how likely they are to win, De La Rosa is probably more likely to pull out a stoppage here, where she can win the fight even if, say, she's outstruck for the first round. You know, she's got that fight-ending potential to maybe in the second round pull out a come-from-behind win. So that kind of makes things tricky for Barbara where she needs to A, avoid spending a significant amount of time being controlled and, and avoid the grappling, but also she's got this kind of wild card submission potential that she needs to avoid. And, you know, grappling for 10 minutes with Roxanne Modifier without getting submitted obviously shows some pretty good submission defense and, and that she should be capable to pull that off. But it's enough of an X factor here that I think the play is still, if you're looking at De La Rosa, to look at her overall at uh, plus 165 instead of that decision prop at, at plus 275. I do like Barber to win this fight still. I think, you know, her striking is good enough that she should, especially with the way the judging has kind of shifted in the last couple of years, she should be able to keep this fight at distance for long enough to get the edge on the feet here. But I do think this one is closer uh, than than is being suggested you know, I don't think Barber's defensive grappling is quite as bad as 50% takedown defense and, and a 30% opponent control rate suggest. But I do think De La Rosa has kind of impressed me with, with some of her grappling numbers and, and think she can keep this one uh, as a little bit more of a toss-up than the betting markets are maybe indicating. Next up, we go to the lightweight division for the co-main event between Clay Guida and Claudio Puelas. Guida currently ranks number 8 in UFC history for the most octagon time at 6 hours, 11 minutes, and 35 seconds. If this one goes a 15-minute decision, he'll jump Jim Miller, he'll jump Max Holloway, he'll jump Jeremy Stevens, which will put him in number 5 all-time, just about a minute behind Diego Sanchez, uh, and within about one fight striking of Damian Maya for third. The only ones ahead of that group, Rafael Dos Anjos uh, in second, and Frankie Edgar in first. So, Guida... Needless to say, has a massive sample size of stats to draw from, and realistically, we're probably going to want to narrow our view um, a little bit more to his more recent fights uh, than his overall career stats, because ultimately, I don't think, you know, maybe the the two knockdowns against Marcus Aurelio uh, in 2007 probably don't tell us a lot about the current Clay Guida coming into this fight. And ultimately, things have not been very good for current Clay Guida. He's coming off a win against Leo Santos, but he was dropped in the first round of that fight and outlanded in, in round one, 39 to eight in significant strikes before getting a, a takedown, one takedown on three attempts and, and eventually racking up the submission in round two of that one. Uh, that prevented him from being one in four in his last five. Uh, lost, it was only a split decision to Mark Madsen, but was outlanded 98 to 72 in significant strikes in that one. Um, had his win over Michael Johnson, but was dominated by Bobby Green, was submitted by by Jim Miller. Um, and, you know, the, the last time we get a win before that stretch, it, it was BJ Penn. It was the corpse of BJ Penn. So Clay Guida really has not looked good in, in quite a while. 
Looking at these last five fights, Guida has been outlanded by 69 distance strikes across the five, landing with just 33.5% accuracy, while his opponents are landing at 45.3%. That's a differential of negative 12%. His grappling has still held up a little bit, though. I mean, a 26.3% 20, control rate over that time, not nearly as good as his 39.1% mark for his career, but he's still getting the job done with his grappling, of course, has that submission win in there as well. Grappling with Claudio Poyas is probably not the answer, though. I mean, he's got two submissions by knee bar in his uh, five-fight UFC career. If we look for someone who like really tried to get the job done with grappling, we see Jordan Levitt was really the one who, the only one who's managed to land more than one takedown against Poyas, and Levitt just had no success there. I mean, he he did show some good grappling chops, but Poyas had ten minutes of control time in that fight compared to just two minutes and six seconds from Levitt. The other two fighters who have taken him down, Gertzmacher in, in the last fight uh, and uh, Felipe Silva back in 2018, both of them lost by submission. <laughs> Taking Poyas down is not the way to beat him, and that means that if Clay Guido wants to win this fight, he's probably going to have to spend some time striking, which I, as I've outlined, it hasn't gone very well. I mean, Poyas' distance striking is not good either. He's getting outlanded by 2.6 distance strikes per minute. But the concern for Poyas is really someone that's going to stifle his grappling and then beat him up on the feet. And, you know, that's just not something we've seen from Clay Guida. We've also seen Guida is susceptible to submissions for as much as he's a good grappler. The majority of his losses, especially his recent losses, have come by submission. And, you know, some of them, you know, getting losing by submission to Charles Oliveira is not the end of the world. Jim Miller is not the end of the world. But it does ultimately become a trend at some point where we see the Jim Miller submission loss, the Charles Oliveira submission loss, the Thiago Tavares submission loss, the Dennis Bermuda submission loss. Like this is this is a weakness that you don't always necessarily expect it out of someone who is a grappler and who has a good submission game themselves. And ultimately, that's what I think ends up costing Guido this fight. I like Poyas to win it. I don't think it's quite as close as the odds would indicate here. So I, I like him at minus 115. Um, but I also think Poyas by submission, uh, it's not available on a ton of books right now. Uh, I'm seeing plus 400 on DraftKings, um, plus 450 elsewhere. So if you if you can find this at plus 450, obviously that's where you want to take it. Uh, I think plus 400 for Poyas by submission, still solid value though. So I, I, I like either spot there. And now we're on to the main event with Amanda Lemos taking on Jessica and Josh. Lemos is obviously on a tear here, coming off a five-fight win streak, uh, and her numbers have looked really solid so far, especially her offensive numbers. She lands 6.6 .6 distance strikes per minute with a 53% accuracy rate. She also has a 57% takedown accuracy rate. The other thing that really stands out, especially when we consider the division, uh, is a 2.82% knockdown rate, including a couple of first-round knockout wins. That's where we want to start to pump the brakes, though. I mean, I talked about cops knockdown rate probably not being sustainable uh, for the men's flyweight division. Well, in the women's flyweight division, or women's strawweight division, rather, especially, a 2.82% knockdown rate is just never going to be sustainable. I mean, obviously, it's a good sign that she's able to get to this point. The fact that she's knocked down four straight opponents showcases that she does have some of the best power in the division. You know, maybe maybe the best power in the division, but even if we want to give her that kind of credit, a 2.82% knockdown rate isn't going to last. We also can look at her defensive numbers with a 59% distance striking defense rate. So again, we account for her, um, we account for her high accuracy rate, and that defense isn't quite as concerning. But 59%, you know, still not uh, not an especially strong mark, and especially when we look at the fact that. 
a lot of her distance striking, you know, for example, we, we've got the Lavinia Souza fight where uh, she outlanded Souza 12 to 1 and, and, you know, spent most of that fight just beating up on an opponent who was who was nearly done. We also have a 28% opponent control rate for Lemos. Her defensive, her takedown defense has held up for sure. But when we look at her last fight against Angela Hill, it, yes, stuffing six or seven takedowns is great. Uh, although Angela Hill not exactly, uh, you know, a high high efficiency wrestler. But Lemos did give up four minutes and twenty four seconds of control time in that fight. She absorbed fifteen significant clinch strikes. That is not good against Jessica Andrade, who's one of the best grapplers in the division, who's got a fifty six percent takedown accuracy rate, landing two point nine takedowns on five point two attempts per fifteen who's got a 28.4% control rate, who comes in matching Lamosh's striking pace with 6.5 distance strikes landed per minute over a much bigger sample. And, and I've, you know, I talked about not wanting to take this too far with Venata, but also against a higher level of competition. I think Andrade's wrestling wins her this fight, and I really love the betting value at minus 180. Lamosh is an exciting prospect, but this is exactly the kind of spot where fading exciting prospects can produce some really big betting value. Some recent um, first round finishes. We've got a knockdown rate that's clearly unsustainable. Uh, hasn't faced a very high level of competition when she did clear deterioration of her numbers. Uh, and then she's against a fighter who puts up elite numbers against elite competition in Andrade. This is exactly the kind of spot I love. So uh, all over Andrade minus 180 this week. Uh, looks like she's also available at minus 175 on a few books still. Um, gonna get in kind of while I can on Andrade. Really love the value this week. Expect her to win this fight and, and to do so handily. And that does it for this week's show. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, as always, if you're looking for more stats, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at NumbersMMA. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, rating or review would mean a lot. Uh, always feel free to reach out with any questions or anything. And good luck on your bets and enjoy the fights this week. Thanks so much for listening.